This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Will Johnson. The show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. A massive investigative effort involving multiple law enforcement agencies was underway. Police said hundreds of leads came in about people thought they knew someone or maybe they thought it was their family member. This is kind of the case that's been the giant logjam for cold cases in, in Spokane. It's been the, I, I keep saying, it's the Mount Everest of our cold case is the one that we could never seem to overcome, but at the same time, nobody ever forgot. Some detective will solve this case someday. Their genealogist gave me a list of only three people. I appreciate you having us uh, here, and uh, we're we're so appreciative to have been able to assist on this case. Um, My name is uh, David Middleman, and uh, I'm the CEO of Authorum. Authorum is a Texas-based laboratory that specializes in forensic-grade genome sequencing. We, uh, we're actually the only company in the United States that uh, can perform these kind of techniques fully in-house. Um, identifying suspects and unidentified persons from crime scenes is all we do. It's the only thing we do. And uh, again, it's entirely in-house. And we've obsessed uh, over the last couple of years about iterating on every step of that process so that everything we do uh, from the first step to the last from evidence in to answers out, um, is optimized and perfected just for this one purpose. In practical terms, what Authorum CEO David Middleman says is that this means his lab is able to access cases most others can't. And uh, we've taken on a number of cases that have either had a, you know, a DNA that's not good enough, um, the DNA quality is too low, or there's not enough quantity. And, um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's times like this when we can help assist in a case uh, as serious as this one, with as much collateral damage as this case has had, um, that it makes that iteration and kind of uh, toiling away in the lab uh, worth it. My name is Ian Smay, I-A-N-S-M-A-Y, and I'm a reporter with Creme 2 News. Ian Smay, a reporter with Creme 2 News in Spokane, Washington, has been looking back at a case from 1959 involving a 10-year-old girl named Candace Rogers. Candy, for short. It seems like she was like any other young girl. She wanted to be a part of a, a group called the Campfire Girls, and she was working to that by being a bluebird first. And Things we saw said that she was described as being small for her class. At her age, she was only about four feet, four inches tall, if I remember correctly. So just a small, average little girl in America. Candy lived with her mother in an apartment above a grocery store in the West Central neighborhood of Spokane. Her grandparents, Stanley and Lita Newton, lived right next door, according to Spokane Police Sergeant Zach Stormont, who talked about the case during a recent press conference. Stanley and Lita Newton were um, a big presence in the girl's life and a big part of raising her. In March of 1959, Candy was gearing up to sell mints around the neighborhood. For Candy, March 6, 1959 meant the beginning of campfire mint sales. Candy was not a campfire girl, but was aspiring to become one. She was a member of the uh, junior member of that organization called Bluebird Girls. March 6th was a Friday. And for Candy, that meant that after school, she would finally get to pick up her boxes of mints. And once the clock hit 4 p.m., she could start selling them. Candy got out of school at Holmes Elementary at the normal time and headed home uh, towards her, her house and stopped along the way to pick, pick up the mints that she would sell. Um, she was such a little thing they could only give her seven boxes. She carried them in a little cardboard carrier. 
And people described her having quite the armload, making it her way, her way back to the house um, with her school books. It was a lot to carry, but the little girl managed to get everything home. Her grandma um, talked to her for a period. She went out in the yard and played with her dog for a while. She's described as eating an oatmeal cookie. She then went uh, next door, went upstairs to her own apartment, where she visited with um, Elaine's friend, Betty. And Betty actually offered to buy mints from Candy. But Candy was following the rules, and the rules required you cannot sell mints until after 4 p.m. So she then set out into her neighborhood. Spokane police have tried to recreate the route Candy took that day as she went door to door. We do know that Candy did visit quite a few doors that day. This is one map, one of our efforts to try to draw the route Candy took. And there's a lot of challenges in in making a map like this. One is we're tracking the movements of a nine-year-old and trying to follow her logic. And it's not that she doesn't have any, it's just we're not sure what she was doing. The other part of this is this is before the age of having cell phones and electronic devices everywhere. So people who tried to estimate the time Candy was there really had to use TV programs and a best guess. So we have a wide range of half-hour increments. Several houses on the map are marked with estimated times Candy stopped by. But while some neighbors no doubt recognized the 10-year-old, others couldn't say for sure if they saw Candy. They just recall the campfire girl or a bluebird stopping by their home. The other part of this is this neighborhood is flooded with campfire girls and bluebird girls selling mints at this period. Many people believe they saw candy but are not certain. Others are certain and are probably wrong. There's reports of candy selling mints all over Spokane that are just not accurate. At the end of the day, the detectives really have to rely on people who had children who knew candy who were at the home when she visited that door. Sergeant Storman believes candy was out selling campfire girls mints for over two hours after that 4 p.m. start time. Myself, having read this and gone through it many times, I, I believe Candy is reasonably alive at 6.30 p.m. on the 2100 block of West Maxwell. But Candy was supposed to be home before it got dark out. And in March in Spokane, it gets dark well before 6.30. So one of the hard, hard and fast rules that Candy had in her home was that she was to she was supposed to be home before dark all the time. That didn't have to be told to her every night. Darkness on March 6, 1959, and every year, of course, falls at 5.42 p.m. We know that Candy's alive at this point because there are people who knew her that confirmed this. So she wasn't home on time, but her family became concerned. So by about 6 p.m., um, Grandpa Newton and friends and neighbors begin looking for her. Mom begins looking as well. Um, And this quickly grows into a bigger and bigger search. Eventually police are notified and Spokane Police Department officers and Spokane County Sheriff's deputies and civil defense volunteers respond to the area to begin looking for Candy. Candy was nowhere to be found. And by 9 p.m. that night, um, campfire mint boxes were being found. Six boxes of mints still in their red, blue, and yellow Campfire Girls packaging, were strewn along the ground on both sides of the road, right on the north edge of the neighborhood. And again, five hours earlier, Candy had set out with seven boxes. That night, they're not entirely certain they're Candy's mints. That takes a while to get that confidence, and they had a count to deal with. 
they finally found that Candy did successfully sell one box of mints. The other six were found along this route. And I believe by that night they had pretty good certainty that these are candies and something terrible has happened. The next morning, Candy was still missing. And seemingly all of Spokane was out looking for her, along with members of the Air Force, the Marines, the FBI, and the United States Postal Service, as well as workers from several local companies, including Washington Water Power and Inland Paper. To this day, it's one of the most extensive searches ever carried out around Spokane. The Marine Corps handled searching everywhere north of Charles Road Dam all the way to Tum Tum. Aircraft were in the air, people were on horseback. People that showed up on foot and didn't have a means to get to a search area were put on the back of police motorcycles and driven to a new search grid. At some point on March 7th, a helicopter was brought in to aid in the search. That helicopter took off to fly the River Canyon and struck high tension wires over Nine Mile Reservoir and went into the water. Five airmen um, were taking part in the search and were looking over a part of the river here in Spokane, the Spokane River, and the helicopter actually hit uh, some power lines or telephone lines and crashed, and three of the airmen died in the search for Candy Rogers. It's a terrible situation, but if there is a bright side to it, because so many people were out looking for Candy, there were a lot of people along the shore already, and it's very shallow there. Um, boats were launched and two men were saved. Three did not survive, of course. Um, I've tried to find pictures of these, of these three airmen who were lost. They are airmen Marlies D. Ray, Staff Sergeant William A. McDonald, and Lieutenant Kenneth D. Faltek. One tragedy on top of what was seeming more and more likely to be another. So the search goes on for 16 days. unsuccessfully, and obviously hope has to be fading to some degree. But what, what is remarkable, volunteer efforts sometimes are short-lived, but the dedication here is, uh, it's really staggering. On the final weekend, 1,200 people came to the command post to help with the search. That's an incredible number by any standard. Of course we know because we're here today, that this did not end well. On March 21st, two off-duty airmen were out hunting in the woods about seven miles northwest of Candy's home. It was in unincorporated Spokane County. It wasn't actually in the city of Spokane or with Spokane city limits at that time. They came across a pair of children's shoes placed near a tree. At first, they didn't think much of the discovery. They left them there and continued on their way, eventually made it back to base, but the conversation continued and eventually it was suggested that we need to call the police about this because they could be related to that little girl. Early on the morning of the 22nd, police went out to search the area. Not far from where the shoes were found, uh, one of those men noticed a knee sticking out of the brush pile and candy had been discovered. The search was over and of course had not ended well. This missing persons case quickly became a homicide case. An autopsy is done the next day on March 23rd. The cause of death is determined to be strangulation. There is very obvious sexual assault. And Candy's feet are bound with a torn strip of her own slip. And another piece of that fabric is also knotted around her neck and used to strangle, strangle her as a ligature. 
You had the, the kidnapping of an innocent nine-year-old who was brutally and violently assaulted and murdered. A nine-year-old who had absolutely no concept of evil that, that exists. There are few crimes that are more impactful to a family member than the murder of a loved one. Investigators quickly began a new search effort, but this time they weren't searching for Candy. They were searching for her killer. Tips come in in droves, um, hundreds of tips. Eventually these files will become public and everyone will be able to see these and you'll be, I think most people would be impressed by the number of calls and reports that came in. And over the years they worked through these. And in the early 60s there was promise. There were things that looked good as far as suspects go. There's one key suspect that they thought might have been responsible, and that was a man by the name of Hugh Morse, who was convicted of two separate murders in Spokane and one in Minnesota. And because of some things that he had done during those murders, they thought it might he might be responsible for this murder. So, for example, there was reportedly a, a motorcycle trail or a motorcycle track in the area, and he was known, he was part of the Spokane Motorcycle Club. That's actually how he first was... A, alerted to authorities that someone else in the motorcycle club brought up some suspicious behavior. Um, with the other two murders, he had left town when they, after they had happened, after he had committed them, and he left town right after Candy Rogers went missing and the search started and took place. And he also, uh, Keith, a weird coincidence is that he was known to chew grape gum regularly, and that was something that he always did, and there was something that was there's grape gum residue found on her clothing when she was found dead. Grape gum came from an observation made by a detective on March 23rd in 1959 during autopsy. This is what detectives do, and I'm not suggesting the detective did anything wrong. He made a note that this stain appeared to be gum and it had a grape smell to it. Somehow that morphed into fact that it is grape gum, and then somehow later on, um, the suggestion was it is a calling card that the killer smeared on candy. Part of that goes with Hugh Morris, who was a grape gum chewer and why he became interesting eventually. But to skip to the end, the DNA in that material is all female. At the time, DNA testing didn't exist, so investigators had no way to know any of this. But even still, the grape gum wasn't enough evidence to make an arrest. So at this point in the 1960s, he remains an interesting subject, but not, not a man they can place probable cause on. So that was really the one big lead they had up until recently, and that, that lead just didn't pan out. Tips would continue to come in over the next four decades, but none led to Candy's killer. A massive investigative effort involving multiple law enforcement agencies was underway. There were hundreds of tips from all over the country. Throughout the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and into 2000, numerous Spokane police detectives picked up Candy's case, but were never able to establish probable cause for an arrest on any of a number of suspects. This is kind of the case that's been the giant log jam for cold cases in, in Spokane. It's been the, I, I keep saying, it's the Mount Everest of our cold case is the one that we could never seem to overcome, but at the same time, nobody ever forgot. Police said hundreds of leads came in about people thought they knew someone or maybe they thought it was their family member that uh, what might have been responsible for Candy Rogers' death. And so detectives that worked on it, and this actually had a pretty big impact on the local police department and sheriff's office here because it, it, two to three, probably at least three generations of detectives went through the police force and a lot of them touched this case at, when they were working on cold cases and couldn't figure it out. In fact, we 
brought up some tape that we found from we interviewed a detective in 2007 who said, you know, this case will be solved one day, and he had put a lot of hours in on it. Some detective will solve this case someday. Then in the early and mid-2000s, detectives began re-examining forensic evidence from the case, specifically Candy's clothing. Semen was identified, a profile was developed, and that profile was uploaded to, I'm sorry, compared to CODIS, or entered into CODIS. No hit has ever resulted from that to this day. But there still is a benefit to having that profile is that we can do one-to-one comparisons with subjects. For the past 20 years or so, investigators have been using that DNA profile to rule out individuals as potential suspects, one of them being Hugh Morse. Even though he, he, he admitted to many homicides and acknowledged that he molested children, he would, not, he would not admit to candy. And in fact, he passed a polygraph and his DNA does not match. So at this point, it's not Hugh Morse. In 2020, Spokane police brought the case to a private forensic lab, but that lab declined the case. I don't know the name of the lab that uh, declined it in 2020, but the reason given was that, you know, it had been 61, 62 years that the DNA was just too degraded to get a confident sample or a sample that they could work with and get a confident result off of. So just the length of time, the amount of DNA was just too degraded and damaged to really work with and be confident in a good result from. In 2021, they tried again. And this time, a forensic lab called Othram in Texas agreed to take on the case. And they have one goal, and that is helping identify victims and suspects in you know, crime scenes and cold cases especially. And they have developed a process to where they can test with samples that are, you know, one one hundredth or one one thousandth the size of what you'd use in a normal hospital or consumer-grade testing kit. Spokane police sent off the DNA from Candy Rogers' clothing and waited. When we send a case like this out, for me, it's similar to a moon mission, the Apollo rockets. The capsule goes onto the dark side of the moon. That's our case. It's gone. I don't know whether they're alive or dead. I'm hoping for the best, and I hope that someday the radio comes to life. In the meantime, tips continued to come in. This year, while I was waiting for my Apollo rocket to come back, people called in, concerned that family members um, of theirs might be Candy Rogers' killer. We collected DNA um, near Portland, we collected DNA in Sandpoint, and we collected DNA in, I believe, Hilliard. All those samples were compared by Brittany Wright, and none of those people were responsible. Finally, in the fall of 2021, Sergeant Zach Stormont says he got the call he'd been waiting for from the lab, and it was good news. Their genealogist gave me a list of only three people. People into genealogy out there will understand that's incredible. We have other cases we've worked where the family tree is monstrous, and it might take years to get through it and narrow it down. But three people... I'm dumbstruck on this conversation, and I'm afraid they think I'm an idiot. I can't even ask an intelligent question at this point. So it's a short phone call, and I drive into work that night and start doing the research on these three men. The three men were brothers, all now deceased. James Andrew Hoff, Terry Allen Hoff, and John Ray Hoff. So you have three brothers, right, that are obviously going to have some shared DNA being three brothers. and But through it, they were able... Um, either through the, the lab testing and then the police work, were able to actually find one of John Rayhoff's uh, daughters named Kathy. And when they got into contact with her, she was very helpful. Daughter Kathy got the phone call from Sergeant Stormont several months ago 
relaying that he thought she might have information on a cold case murder that would be helpful. Without giving her much information, I just said, I'm working on a cold case and I need your help. I'm not disclosing details. She doesn't know the name Candy Rogers. She drives down to the police station and is there within 45 minutes. From there, I begin introducing her to the concept of, of why. She's confused as to how she can help. She's never been involved in anything bad in her life. And while Kathy was sure she couldn't be of help, when told the murderer may be her father or one of her uncles, she submitted her own DNA. And then through the Washington State Patrol Forensics Lab and a scientist there named Brittany Wright, they concluded that, and it was actually September 8th of this year, they concluded that uh, Kathy's DNA was 2.9 million times more likely to be related to the DNA from the scene. And with that level of confidence, it usually means that it's a sign of paternity or it would be Kathy's dad, which was John Rahoff. 2.9 million times more likely that the suspect is Kathy's father. That's essentially what it means. On September 23rd of 2021, they exhumed John Rahoff's body to run a DNA test. They wanted to be as sure as possible. This isn't something, it's sort of unpalatable to do this type of thing, but we're talking about the rape and murder and kidnapping of a nine-year-old girl. Before I'm gonna hang the mantle of child killer, child rapist, kidnapper around a man's neck, even though he's dead, we're, going to, we're going to achieve that certainty the best that's possible. Whatever doubt remained after the initial testing was wiped away by that one-to-one -one comparison between John Rahoff's DNA and the DNA of Candy's killer. Finally, on October 1st, I got the phone call that gives us that astronomical number, 25 quintillion. For perspective, 25 quintillion is 25 with 18 zeros behind it. So it's as sure as you can be. We know with certainty that the semen found in Candy Rogers' underwear is John Rahoff's. Some breaking news at this hour. Spokane police say they have solved one of the oldest cold cases in the entire state. SPD it took 62 years, but investigators had finally identified the man who killed Candy Rogers. The police chief said it's a bittersweet moment, but it's definitely more bitter than sweet because it did take so long to give closure to the family and also the Spokane community as a whole. You know, they're happy to be able to tell the family that they now know who is responsible for their nine-year-old kid's death, you know, a life cut way too short, but at the same time, it took 62 years to get that closure, and a lot of loved ones of Candy's are now passed away and passed away without ever knowing what happened to her. We have had many hands that have touched this case, from police officers to detectives, from multiple agencies from all over the area. And while we weren't able to bring the suspect to, to justice in this case, it is our hope that at least by solving this case, it brings a measure of, of comfort and closure to the family, to the loved ones in the community as well. DNA had provided an answer to the biggest question in this case, who killed Candy Rogers. But there were still other questions, many of them about John Ray Hoff. One of the obvious questions that comes about with this guy, what else did he do? This level of crime, this isn't where a person starts. Hoff was born in August of 1938 and would have been 20 years old when he killed Candy in 1959. Hoff was from Spokane and had entered the army at age 17, but was arrested and convicted of second-degree assault in 1961. Because of that conviction, he was declared a deserter with the army and discharged. He spent the rest of his life um, in various jobs. He sold cut co cutlery. He worked at Western Pine Lumber, which I believe was at 200 East Jackson in Spokane. And he finally worked at the Armor Meatpacking Plant. 
Uh, there he received a chemical burn to his face, and his life finally ended in suicide in 1970 at the age of 31. So Kathy, the daughter that ended up basically being the key component in police solving the case, did talk in a video with police for this announcement. When you finally realized it was your dad, what went through your mind? Disbelief, but not that I didn't believe it, but it's just, it, it takes a while for it to like sink in. And anger, sadness. Um, by that point, you know, I had already looked up, you know, someone that a little girl murdered in 1959, so I knew who it was. It's just really sad to find out that someone that, not even that just your dad, but just someone in your family could do something like that. What would you like Candy and her mother to know? I'm very, very sorry for what my dad did, that he took her life horribly and that he took her, her mom's life, really, took her dad's life. He took more lives than one. And even though I didn't do it and I'm not responsible, I mean, I wasn't even born, I hope that it gives her peace knowing that even though it's not really justice, <laughs> because he doesn't get any punishment, but that his name has this on it now and they can know it's solved and everybody can know it's done. Prior to his exhumation, John Ray Hoff had been buried in the same cemetery where Candy was laid to rest. But in light of this news, Hoff's family made the decision to move his body to allow Candy Rogers to rest peacefully. They make the decision that because John Ray Hoff is buried in the same cemetery, where Candy is interred. They don't want him there anymore, and they take it upon themselves to have him removed so that she can enjoy some peace. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson here along with Reed Redman. And Reed, just such an amazing story to learn that they have solved this crime after so many years. We heard a little bit from John Rahoff's daughter, Kathy, about getting this news that her father, who died six decades ago, was a killer. What else did she share about that experience? Yeah, in the the police press conference, the the sergeant who was working this case talked about having to deliver that news. And and he essentially said his job required him to, to throw this family into chaos. I don't remember the exact words that he used, but it was something like, I had to ruin this family's life by telling them about this. And the clips that we heard from Kathy are from a video put together by Spokane Police. And there's one other clip from that that I found really striking that didn't come up earlier in the episode. If you'll remember, John Ray Hoff died by suicide a couple years after Candy was murdered. And Kathy said that she spent her life feeling bad for him, thinking that you know he'd battled mental health issues. But upon getting this news, she feels differently now that she knows what he was actually living with. And she even went so far as to call him evil. So you think of all of the victims in this case, of course, Candy, Candy's family, but then we have this whole other family that now has to deal with knowing that somebody in their family, someone they trusted, did something this horrible. They're, they're victims in this too. Another factor here, John Ray Hoff wasn't even a suspect prior to this recent DNA testing. Do we know if he had any connection to Candy prior to that day in March of 1959? 
what Ian Smay told me is that there's really no known tie there, but there's one possible place where maybe they could have met. Apparently, John Ray Hoff's 10-year-old stepsister was actually the, uh, I guess they call it, the big sister for Candy Rogers in the Campfire Girls organization or the Bluebirds. So she was Candy's mentor in the Campfire Girls. That could just be a coincidence. We don't know that that would have led to any meeting between John Ray Hoff and Candy Rogers. Another weird coincidence mentioned in that Spokane Police video, and this one is for sure a coincidence, there was a book put out in 2014 that was created by the Spokane Police Department History Book Committee, which is apparently something that exists. And in that book, Candy's story is just 10 pages away from a photo of John Ray Hoff. And again, that book was created in 2014. So that's long before Hoff was connected to Candy's case. His photo is actually in that book in an unrelated story about a law enforcement identification system that used his mugshot from an arrest a couple of years after Candy's murder. So strange. There's also the fact that they were buried in the same cemetery up until this recent news, just, just bizarre coincidences. And Reed, we heard a lot about Hoff's family receiving this news from Spokane police. Do we know if Candy has any living relatives and if so, how they reacted to her case being solved? Yeah, considering this was 62 years ago, many of the people who knew Candy are no longer around. But we know police were able to deliver the news to one of her cousins who was also featured in that video I mentioned that was put out by Spokane police. And it's just a, a short clip, but I'll, I'll play it. While the news was welcome in a bittersweet way, it also triggered emotions and memories that have been extremely difficult for Candy's cousin. I feel like Candy's loss was... Just a horrible loss. She was so cute. Mm -hmm. And she didn't have much time. All right, Reed, thanks for bringing us the story this week. And also thanks to Ian Smay at Crim 2 News in Spokane, Washington, for all of his help on this story. Want to tell our listeners about a new show we have. Uh, the trailer is now live. We have episodes launching on February 16th. It's called Killer Cases, and you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, that's Killer Cases, and you'll be hearing a lot more about that one from both Reed and myself. And if you're not already listening to our daily podcast, you can check us out Monday through Friday. We have new episodes every weekday. It's called The Daily Crime. For True Crime Chronicles, along with Reed Redmond, I'm Will Johnson. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story. 